0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the UVC Podcast. I'm David and I'm joined by Andreas. Today, we're welcoming Tom McChin with us. Tom is the General Counsel of NurseZone. And in case you been living under a rock, that is a multi-stage venture fund with offices in London, Stockholm, New York City, Amsterdam, and Berlin that invests from seed to growth across Europe and the U.S. You may recall seeing the news about Northzone closing a $1 fund last year, and it has backed over 100 companies, including names like Spotify, Personio, and Spring Health. Tom joined Northzone in 21, straight from Cooley, where he helped get the emerging companies team in Europe off the ground. If you're listening in and you love our show, you know what to do. Follow the pod and subscribe at EU.VC. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. This this is a union of values.
1: United and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions of the world.
0: The nature of a problem the problem requires a European response.
1: Europe is a story of new beginnings. New new beginnings.
2: Let's start acting. Acting 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 acting.
1: Are you tired of only knowing what European VCs sound like? Mm. Yawn no more. Leap over to EU.VC where the episodes come alive. Now, with every new episode featured in full video, high def, pristine lighting, emotions up close, and men and women who pick their boogers, don't settle for eavesdropping on Europe's best investors. Join The Peak Show instead at EU.VC.
2: This show is not investment advice, and the hosts of this episode may be invested in the funds and companies featured. So, Tom. I met you down in Bucharest, and I'm very happy that I did because now we're going to be interviewing about all the topics that we tried to talk about in a bar that was far too loud for that to be a really <laughs> productive conversation. So, Tom, let's start where every conversation here on EVC starts. How did you break into venture?
1: So I think the the long version of the story probably starts off with the movie Jerry Maguire. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that 90s
2: classic. Beautiful. Um Work that everyone should watch around December every year.
1: There are a few things I'll agree with more than that statement. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I totally agree. I, I watched it as like a six, seven year old when it came out, and it just had like a super profound impact on me. You know, kind of the relationship that Jerry Maguire. For those that don't know, he's basically a sports agent, and um, you know his the relationship he had with with his clients. Um, Kind of how it goes beyond just the transactional just had a huge impact on me. Uh, And he was uh, a law student slash lawyer. So as a six, seven-year-old, I'm like, that's what I'm going to model my life after. I'm going to go to law school. And that's what I ended up doing. (laughs) So yeah, Jerry Maguire had a huge, huge impact on me. And then when I was in law school, I started working with a startup. So this is 2011, so just over 10 years ago now. Uh, an online dispute resolution startup in Washington, D.C. And that was a very good experience. It uh, was a super small team. It's basically a retired judge, myself, and a couple of engineers. And the company, you know, it's it's not really operating anymore. Um, But it was a great experience. And I learned uh, a lot, including a couple of uh, important lessons. One is... A good a big market doesn't necessarily mean a valuable market. I think we work as a,
2: a a good reminder of that. Um, I I, mean, I, literally, I literally have a friend that's building a business doing exactly that right now. <laughs> that's I funny. Just, yes.
0: just let's just copy paste this this little bit of the episode and send it to him <laughs>
1: doing a, an online dispute resolution startup. Yeah. So I'd and love to see. I, I'd love to speak with him because um, I think like it's it's such an interesting space and you can definitely do it right. So maybe
2: uh, I'll I'll shoot, I'll shoot we
1: can think about that. So this yeah. was, I think, one of the first ever online dispute resolution startups uh, or companies in you know, and it get run out of DC. Great guy, the founder, a retired circuit court judge in, in the U.S. But yeah, it, it kind of it printed on me two lessons. One is big market doesn't necessarily equal a valuable market. And, and the other lesson really was um, you need people who understand how to build businesses around you in order to build and scale a high growth business. So um, I said, well, how, how can I kind of become a person like that? I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to London and, and join a law firm called Osborne Clark, which at the time had like a top rated venture practice in, in the UK. So yeah, that's kind of the, the long version of uh, the, 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 the story.
0: You shared the Jerry Maguire <laughs> inspiration, which felt like a pivotal moment. But I'm going to ask the question again, hoping there's, a, there's another one in there. Uh, share it us a pivotal moment in your life and how it has shaped you today uh, as, as someone working in venture.
1: I guess let me start off by saying that uh, maybe an obvious statement to, to you and the, the listeners, which is that lawyers are known as being uh, very risk averse, you no know, risk averse naysayers who don't really speak like humans. And a pivotal moment in my life was when I realized it didn't really have to be that way. So I was working uh, with a company called Panacea on their seed round and one of the investors was represented by a guy called Ryan Naftalin who was a partner at Cooley and he just moved to, to London from the US. For those that don't know, Cooley is a big West Coast law firm, probably the most active uh, firm when it comes to venture investments globally. Uh, and, uh, and one of our
2: core sponsors. No, wait, they're not, Tom, <laughs> need to do it.
1: They
0: should be. I was going to say, I was going to say, say they actually have great, for fa- it's mostly for founders. I don't know if they have stuff for fund managers as well, but they have great like playbooks and resources totally. and a bunch
1: of stuff available. So one thing that I recommend to a ton of people is their kind of online document automation yeah. service. It's totally free, totally open sourced. And if you're in the UK or the US and Singapore, I think you can create a whole suite of incorporation documents when you're starting your company, but also kind of
2: employment agreements, and we can get into this sort of stuff later. But now, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll be sharing everything about it in two months on the uh, on the podcast when they're <laughs> sponsored. Yeah, <laughs> 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 let's, put, let's put
1: <laughs> <ammunition> for, <laughs> for for them. But um, but yeah, I. I you know, it was a great experience working with Ryan on that deal. And, and he convinced me to, to, to join his team as, as one of the first employees of Cooley in, in Europe and, you know, working there was a great experience. And it really kind of underlined two things for me. Um, one is that in order to become a good advisor to high growth companies, you really, whether you're a lawyer or an investor or, you know, another advisor, I think you really need a lot of experience across a lot of companies across a lot of different stages and across a lot of different cycles. So that sort of experience basically takes time to develop in Europe. We're obviously getting there in terms of people that have that kind of holistic view. Um, But compared to the U S it's still pretty nascent just because our industry is a bit, a bit more nascent and we haven't had as many companies as the U S that have, you know, on public, for example, so that was one thing: uh, having the right level of experience, which which you know he and, and Cooley more generally certainly have. And the other uh, was having a mindset of, "Hey, I'm really going to try to help this person in a proactive way." When you're dealing with founders, so I think there is a difference between kind of the U.S. approach to being an advisor slash lawyer to high growth companies and the European one, I feel like the UK, like with many things, is, is kind of a bit of a halfway house. But I, I think generally speaking, and it's, you know, it's tough to kind of generalisms are always dangerous. But generally speaking, I think that European lawyers in our industry, so when you're advising high growth companies and their founders and investors, European lawyers tend to be a little bit more reactive as opposed to proactive. Also more risk-averse, uh, a bit more kind of black-letter, let's-stick-to-the-letter-of-the-law sort of thinking. Whereas in the U.S., they're just more business advisors, which is why in the U.S., you know, the general counsel will, will typically attend board meetings. Uh, whereas in, in Europe, that's not typically the case.
0: I'd love to go super off-script and put you on the spot. But I have to ask this because like two weeks ago, I was in a, in an event where there was a, a legal tech entrepreneur talking about AI. And this is not the topic of today's conversation. So let's make this a small side comment. I'd yeah. love to ask you, what, in your worldview, what's the future of AI within the legal space? Uh, <laughs> what role can it play? Uh, and let's try and keep it short. I know it's a really tough question. I'm putting you on the spot here, but I'd love to have your quick thoughts.
1: So it's something I've thought about a lot. Uh, And this is also informed by kind of my experiences with that online dispute resolution startup I mentioned at the top of the show. I think the potential is huge um, because so much of what lawyers do in big law firms can be commoditized. So the potential is huge. I think the barrier are our lawyers and are the incentives that drive big law firms. And again, lawyers tend to be very risk averse, Um, you know. It's only until fairly recently that big law firms have started, you know, using Google Drive to share documents as opposed to pinging Word docs to each other over email. Slack, I know, you know, is is also not a common kind of tool within law firms. Okay. So, I think generally speaking, lawyers are very risk averse when it comes to new technology, particularly if there's kind of no human to oversee it. So, the potential is massive, but I think it will take a long time for it to filter through
2: to the way bigger law firms operate. I'm going to take us through through the script so that we actually manage to get through everything. Because as you just said just before, and that was what I was about to say, Tom, you are not the average lawyer. So I'm really excited about this. And we're going to get knee deep into some of the company building stuff that you normally don't get the Advice from from Daniel Council in Urban So I'm really excited about this. But first, let's go to the take a stand section. Take a stand. Now, Tom, I would love to ask you to comment on this quote from Sean O'Sullivan from SOSV.
1: Entrepreneurship, it's a blood sport. The founders are constantly battling in the arena. Uh, And and ultimately, the majority of them are not going to be successful. I think there are a couple of ways to interpret this. One is less controversial, uh, the other more controversial. So I'll I'll focus on the more controversial interpretation. You know, the less controversial one is a very obvious one, which is that it's super hard to build and scale a business. Uh, And there are going to be people on the show who can speak to this way better than I can. But, you know, going from... You know, zero to 1 million ARR is one thing, but it's super hard to go from 1 million to 10 million ARR. And that's when most companies fail because you need to shift your mindset from let's hustle and build some traction to we really need to win. And the best founders are obviously able to do this. So building a company, super hard, very uncontroversial statement. Uh, The more controversial statement is that, or interpretation is that it's super hard to turn a company that's developing negatively. So once the rod has started, it's just very difficult to reverse. You know, if an investor asks for a multiple liquidation preference when they put together a round, you know, like a 2X preference, say, the next investor is probably going to ask for that too. And before you know it, your employees are going to be totally out of the money and they know that. Negative emotions will, will, will seep in, investors, the seed investors will be upset, they'll start losing trust. And once trust starts to break down, it's very difficult to, to reverse. It's really a vicious cycle.
2: I was about to say, on that note, we, we've just seen Cruz uh, <laughs> passing their stock auction program um, just this morning um, after having, having a major blow up, of course, or rundown, if I should call it that.
0: Yeah, probably the latter. <laughs>
1: it's interesting, though, because I've seen companies that are profitable or near profitable uh, who are trying to build around, but where the stakeholders around the table have just lost trust in each other. And the result is a very complex funding round with a very complex capitalization structure, which is just going to lead to more complexity and more negative emotions and com- those sorts of companies dying. I've seen that a number of times, whereas conversely, I've seen companies that have worse performance metrics, same stage, same economic environment that, you know, where, where the stakeholders do have trust in each other and they're able to build a good round and, and live to fight another day. And, and I think like the difference between the two is really the founder and how is able to manage or how she's able to manage their stakeholders and build a high functioning board and keep everyone happy and, and everyone aligned. So a founder, you know, really plays like they're the difference. Uh, between those two outcomes.
0: So Tom, you just hinted, just made my life super easy. You could just hinted to the main topic that we want to deep dive into, which is high-functioning boards. And I think I'd start with a very macro macro question to kind of set the stage for, for everyone listening in, which is, you know, from, from where you're standing, what is an effective board? board what does it look like? And then we can deep dive on, okay, as an operator, as a founder, as an entrepreneur, how the hell can you go around building that?
1: Uh, Sure. So I think this is a super important topic. And I think there's a real lack of understanding among founders and and also investors around what an effective board should look like, uh, let alone how to build it. You know, many founders, I'm sure this chimes with your experience, see board meetings as a massive time sink. You know, they treat meetings as a sort of state of the union where they just run through the board pack. And it doesn't have to be that way. And I think investors, you know, we always talk about how how can investors provide value? Um, you know, it's such an overused phrase in the in the industry. But I think one way investors can really provide value is by helping founders build and maintain a, a high functioning board. So to your question, how do you create a high functioning board? I think ultimately it isn't structural it's social and it boils down to the founder creating a culture of transparency, collaboration and frankness. Now, throughout the company's life cycle, you can make structural changes to foster board effectiveness. You know, you can bring in a chair, you can start having subcommittees, you can change how many times the board meets and how long board meetings last. You can do all of that sort of stuff. But generally, the key determinant in terms of high functionality will be the, the the culture that the founder imprints. And just before we get to kind of ways you can create that sort of culture, so kind of tips to do that, um, I just quickly plug uh, a really excellent piece of work that uh, Laura McGuinness at Balderton put together. It's essentially a, a 101 guide for founders covering some of these structural tips um, and and also, it has some like super
2: helpful templates and checklists. So I, I maybe we can link to that. Uh, in... Yeah, we, we always put this kind of thing in the uh, in the show yeah. notes. Both saying that to you, Tom, but also to the listeners here. You know, whenever you hear something, it's typically in our show notes. So don't worry. Awesome. Uh, but yeah, it's a great it's a great resource that uh, was was very well researched and, and it shows. I know you know them by heart because you work so much with it. So I I would actually love for you to just tell us, you know, give us your tips for the top founders here to when it comes to establishing the right culture? If you would take us through those, just the ones that you find most important. Sure thing.
1: So I think the most important one is building trust with the investors. And, you know, it's really about being honest about your weaknesses, where you might have gaps in your knowledge, be honest about what might not be going so well. And it's a two way street. And I think Fred Destin on your show, I think over the summer, uh, talked about how it is a two-way street and 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 investors should be more willing to give founders the benefit of the doubt as opposed to just thinking that you know they're ill prepared or they're not willing to be vulnerable number 1 is is like the top tip is just be honest with your investors and really seek out their help
0: something we hear a lot as well both on our podcast but whatever event you go that has VC's in it you'll hear this like the potential value you can destroy as a board member like it clearly outweighs the potential value you can create <laughs> as a board member, right? And 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 I've heard of many stories and and I can't really disclose names, but I was talking with with investors that I really look up to, to be honest. And one of them was telling me, well, I had this board member that, you know, at, at a later stage he just joined the board. And I was like, this this is a VC right at early stage VC. I was like, my jaw dropped at the amount of value this 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 board member was adding from day one. And I was just like in all of this, dude, and then eventually, we—he uh, actually recommended the CRO, and the CRO of that company actually ended up almost kind of leading the company to to implode, right? <laughs> and so, uh, and this is not to say that was actually a bad board member. No, it goes to show like the potential value that you can destroy is so high that you really need to be careful. So, I'd love to ask you know, you gave a tip from top tip from a founder perspective. How would you how would you tackle it from the investor perspective with this backdrop?
1: As an investor, you can be super helpful to a founder if you help the founder navigate their board and help the founder see things that they might not automatically see. You know, help them identify where incentives might be misaligned among the other members. Help them understand that, for example, one investor might be pushing for an exit because he needs DPI or she needs DPI. Um, whereas the other investors are saying, no, let's, you know, let's raise some more money and extend runway and you know, not sell. One investor might be a strategic investor who might want to buy the company. They're not saying that explicitly, but maybe they are. So I, I think as an investor, if you're able to separate your roles, because they are two different roles, right? You're wearing your board hat and your investor hat. If you're able to separate the two and as part of your board hat, Help the founder understand how the board ticks, how to make it work better, how to solve for misalignment, how to bring people together. I think that is incredibly useful.
2: On that note of of it being two roles, because yes, you're right. The function of the board is to take care of the company. The Mm. function of the investors is to take care of your own shareholdings. Mm. Um, How do you kind of navigate that yourself, but also how to talk about that inside North Zone and 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 navigate it as a firm?
1: Different funds approach this differently. Like some funds, they really delineate heavily in terms of their internal operations between these two roles. At North Zone, the person who I mean obviously it's a partnership that makes investment decisions about whether or not to, you know, to participate in a round in a North Zone company. So it's kind of the collective that decides. But in Norson's case, it's the person who's on the board whose company it is for internal Norson purposes, and who's pushing for that financing to to be made by Norson into that company. so but but yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough, uh, it's a tough dance uh, for for any investor.:
0: Could I ask you to comment on something, Tom? Again, I'm quoting someone which I cannot name. I was told recently that the best founders treat the board as their employees. <laughs> could you comment on that uh from from your perspective
1: it's a, it's a very interesting quote i'm trying to kind of figure out how i think about it
0: just to give you time to also kind of digest it and and remind the context was very much of you know they treat them as employees in the sense that they're not necessarily sitting and waiting for the board members to come and add value no they're very proactive in saying okay this this is what we right. need and i think you specifically can help with xyz you know very proactive as as a founder right in the board
1: well A couple of thoughts on that that just popped into my mind. So one is, I I love that, and um, one of the most high functioning boards I've seen involved the founder starting off board meetings with basically like giving investors points based on whatever they had done in the (laughs) period leading up to the board meeting, Harry Potter, Hogwarts house style, Um, (laughs) and and, creating that sort of accountability. Uh, and also a bit of, obviously, investors are competitive, uh, or can be at least.
0: <laughs> exactly. We should the start, we should start the
2: UVC episodes. Yeah. We start <laughs> the UBC episodes giving points on preparation. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. Tom, you've done a great job. So everyone, if you want 10. to, you can, you know, I was about to say, if you turn on the video, if you're watching this on YouTube or on, on EU.vc, then you, I'll share my screen and then you can see the notes that Tom did. He did a fabulous job. <laughs>
1: So I, I love that. That's sort of like creating accountability. Um, and I also, again, it goes back to the point I was making around kind of honesty, transparency, frankness, vulnerability, right. With your employees, you'll, you'll be that, right. Because you know, one dream, one one team, one dream, geez, sort of thing.
0: (laughs) One dream. dream. Um,
1: Right. So, so if you, if you have that sort of same candid relationship with your employees as you do with your board members, I think that's, uh,
2: that's a good thing, yeah. I'd love to take us to you know your key tips to foster board effectiveness because we've been kind of going around it now, but as I just said you've done you've done your homework, so I have seven beautiful bullets here, and I would love for us to really have the time to get, get through them and talk about them so 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 please, Tom, take the floor and, and really, really tell us it on us i I know I, I
1: included a number of points here um, in the interest of time. I'd probably focus on the three biggest ones from my perspective. So, one kind of echoing something I said earlier, be aware of misalignment among your investors. As a founder, that is super, super important. You know, know where, for example, a fund is in terms of its own fundraising process, right? How is that dictating or shaping the way that investor is making decisions? So, be aware of misalignment super super key the second one i'd say is use each fundraising as an opportunity to level the board up this often doesn't get done you know virtually every fundraising i've seen has been let's just get it done as soon as possible so that we can focus back on running the business <laughs> and let's forward all of the stuff that we have let's forward the board you know just roll it forward you know and 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 when you're getting new money in and you're recutting governance anyway, that's really the best opportunity to you know, have a discussion and, and some thinking around, hey, is the board fit for purpose for where we are as a company and where we want to go? And again, the best time to do it is at the term sheet stage, because you can use the new money as kind of a forcing mechanism to make that change happen. It happens fairly rarely that that tough discussion around what the board should look like post-close takes place. And if it doesn't take place at the term sheet, it typically doesn't take place at all, you know, in the context of that that round. Second top tip is, is use of financing as an opportunity to level the board up. I'd say the third one is, I think it's very useful for the board to evaluate itself annually. Maybe not annually, but let's just say regularly. I think annually is a, a good starting point. And kind of depending on how complex the company is operationally, you know, the focus should be on kind of the board, the subcommittees, but also the directors individually. A good way I've seen this done is where kind of an independent director has candid interviews with all of the board members, you know, or all of the subcommittee members, um, kind of collates the feedback and also compares that to benchmarks across the industry, across similar companies. Um, so I think like an evaluation process is a super useful thing to do as a board.
2: Oftentimes board roles are given on the back of shareholdings and rights slash positions when you do a round rather than competence and value add and so on. I'd love to ask, or, or as you say here, based on on being independent. <laughs> So I'd love to ask you, how do you think about that? And how do you advise both VCs to manage that uh, you know, process of, of putting together the board?
1: There are a few ways to think about this. One is you want to make sure that your board is strategically aligned from day one. So whenever you're doing a new round and there's you know, a new investor who's joining the family, make sure that that new investor who's likely going to be on the board is a good fit. is making your family stronger, make sure you're strategically aligned. And typically that's also, you know, it goes back to incentives, right? Like if your lead for whatever reason is the strategic investor, they might have very different incentives to, you know, a North zone, you know, or an index or a creandum or whatever, where you're just a financial investor and, you know, you want the company to give you as big a return as possible. You're never going to buy it. So um, make sure you're aligned strategically, make sure incentives are aligned and make sure that there's a good cultural fit with the person joining the board. And, and I think the cultural fit between the founder and and the investor is is super important. Right. I mean, that's really that should be one of the key things that affects your decision to take someone's money. I, I think linked to that, it's like a pet peeve of mine that investors I mean, this is super candid, but like, you know, Generally, there are just too many observers. And typically, I think, you know, particularly in like high growth, like if you're at like seed or series A, you know, you're really trying to, to get to the position where you can get into growth mode. You know, I think small, strong boards are a good thing um, by really just having kind of the essential people involved. Um, so as a founder of those types of companies, I'd be very, um, very careful with who I give observer seats to. And I shouldn't just agree to it because an investor says it's standard for us to always ask for an observer right whenever we're on the board.
0: Tom, before uh, allowing Andreas to, to, to wrap this bit up, I just want to ask you to um, give some examples, because you mentioned something in, in the notes of creating a vehicle for engagement outside of board meetings. Could you explain in a couple of sentences what that means exactly and maybe even give some examples?
1: Uh, yeah, for sure. I, I'd say it kind of echoes the point you were making, David, around there being a lot of value and founders treating their board like employees. Like founders will obviously be part of a ton of Slack channels. I think that can be very useful for boards as well, right? To have a board Slack channel so that you have, you know, you're able to build a strong relationship between really the key stakeholders in that business that isn't just limited to Meeting each other four times a year, so so I think Slack is a good way to do that. Obviously, including kind of social elements when you do meet in person. I think meeting in person generally is also very important. So yeah, I think it's just trying to create some regular touch points between the board members, and also, you know, trying to deepen those relationships. I think
2: is is uh, is a very valuable thing to do. I know you, you're an avid candidate for or, or, or advocate for for founders to make sure that they build relationships across the fund and not just with the, the one leading, leading the investment? Because if that investor leaves the firm, you're up shit's creek. How do you manage that as a VC? How do you, because that's also somewhat the responsibility of the VC.
1: Uh, it's a great question. And before I get to the VC side, uh, let me just say that I, I totally agree with what you just said. It's super important to avoid being orphaned. Right. Um, So, as a founder, you want to make sure, even as part of the kind of reverse pitch stage, you want to make sure that you speak to a number of people across the fund as opposed to just the person that's going to join your board. From the VC perspective, it's also important to have a good relationship with the founder. Right. Because if for whatever reason the person who was on the board leaves your fund, you want to make sure that. You have a strong relationship with the founder and the company and 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 key management so you know trying to create those touch points with the team outside of just the kind of board member company relationship i think is is
2: is something that all
1: vcs should and many do do pretty well
2: before we go to the shout out section let's just wrap things up so you we did some notes here right and you're saying one be aware of misalignment among investors two Use each fundraising as an opportunity to level up the board. Three boards should self-evaluate annually, at least, maybe more, maybe less, <laughs> and don't become orphaned. Key one that we just came that we just talked about. Create diversity in the board. I know that you've often said that Sarah Drinkwater is, is one of the the great speakers on this. She's also been on the podcast before. We absolutely love her uh, and what she's building um, with Common Magic. So so for sure go there, and then. Reduce the people in the room and create a vehicle for engagement outside of the board meeting. So that's the wrap up, everyone. Go back thirty seconds if you if you feel like it and uh, and and then you've got the wrap up of this. We'll also put uh, these notes in the uh, show notes on EUbc. But now let's head into the shout out segment. Love is in the air. I look we would love to ask you, to give a shout out to Cohen Master Angel or LP for being absolutely uh, awesome. So I'm
1: going to shout out our talent team here, uh, Elena Pantazi, our, our talent partner, and my, my colleague Dennis Erickson. So they've carved out, I think, a super critical role at Northzone, and they're they're both great to work with. But I think like Sabina uh, Visander uh, was on your show saying, you know, one of the controversial statements uh, that that you guys list. Of, uh, you know, VCs add way less value than they think. I think Fred Destin was on your show talking about how VCs can actually be value killers. Well, I, I think one way that VCs can add a ton of value is by helping companies hire well. You know, if you place a founding engineer, you've you've added massive value. And I think in it's such an important function. And in order to get the most out of it, and in order to give your companies the most value. Uh, you really need someone exceptional to lead it, and and I think Elena is that. Um, you know, if you hire a mediocre person, you're gonna you're gonna place mediocre talent. So I'd shout out Elena and and, and Dennis. And then do I have, do I have room for a few more?
2: Yes, I was about to say, I uh, was hesitating to come in here because I really wanted you to give right. the artist also because you're giving a shout out to 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 a chap I love and have uh, had some good nights with. <laughs> so.
1: Uh, you know, just just a, a few more uh, than two two female founders who are good friends of mine and and are, you know, they can definitely attest to uh, entrepreneurship being a, a blood sport, albeit kind of the uh, the less controversial interpretation. Uh, if you go back to what we were talking about, you know, these guys are, you know, they regularly inspire me, and yeah, they're just they're amazing people. So one is Sina Qureshi, the founder of Synantic. Uh, which is a company that sold to Spotify last year. Uh, she's still at Spotify. You know, she's an angel and also a therapist to a number of founders she works with and just an overall great person. And the other is Deirdre O'Neill, uh, one of the co-founders of Fertility. Which I, I used to share an office with, with, with Dee. She's a full-on serious marketing genius uh, and also one of the funniest people I've ever met. And yeah, she's she's great. She's a real force of nature. Finally, I'll go to my final shout-outs. Uh, just being being Hungarian and being very bullish on Central and Eastern Europe. I'd shout out the uh, Feeder Capital guys who I know are friends of you of, of the show and, and and you guys personally and also friends of mine. Uh, they're they're in the process of uh, of closing their their fund. And yeah, they're awesome guys doing an awesome thing in an awesome part of the world.
2: So now I want to take us into our three biggest learning section. And I think aptly, if I should put it so myself, I I called this section, the three biggest learnings from the general counsel of a tier one fund to the rest of the European VC community. So let's see if you can live up to this, (laughs) this bold, bold headline for this segment. So I think tip number one
1: is, you know, misalignment kills companies. Now, I was trying to think like, because I'm trying to kind of prioritize the kind of biggest learnings. And I'd say that that is the biggest one for me. You know, if you're misaligned between the stakeholders, that misalignment is just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. So doing whatever you can to reduce misalignment is super important as a founder. There are a few ways you can do that, which I'm, I'm happy to talk about. Number two is, is keep things simple. Right, like Oakham's Razor, uh, the the simplest solution will typically be uh, the best one. And again, it kind of goes back to misalignment, right? If you don't try to, you know, solve corner cases, you know, or reinvent the wheel, go with what's kind of normal and standard, that'll typically yield a, a good result. The third one I'd say is that respect the fact that a founder's business is an extension of themselves and that Vildolf will be very emotional about the business. And in, particularly in a time like this, it's, uh, it's just important to bear that in mind. So, so I think the, the third biggest learning is that people are emotional, particularly founders, for good reason.
2: And now I will bring up a topic that is incredibly interesting uh, and somewhat complex and something that especially the European VC ecosystem and and the early stage investors maybe are less familiar with, but you, as someone with the experience from North Zone and the U.S. market, will know a bit more about. And that is the liquidation preferences and the structures that we have in different um, in in the two different ecosystems and what we kind of tend tend to do in Europe and what they tend to do in the U.S. And I know you have an example with Hop, in which we had Patrick on the other day, who is of course very close, Patrick from uh, Tapestry. Who's, of course, very close to the uh, the Hopin founder, um, having been one of the first investors. So with that intro setting you up for a controversial conversation about Hopin and degradation preferences, Tom, tell us. So I'd start off by saying that
1: this really shouldn't be something that is controversial. And it goes back to misalignment. Again, I feel like that's the 50th time on the show that I've said this.
2: That's, okay. that's how you ensure that you're not misaligned, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And, you know, if we zoom out a little bit, you know, what is a liquidation preference? It's downside protection, right? It's, and I know virtually everyone who's on, who's listening will will know this, but but just to make sure we're all on the same page, a liquidation preference is a right to be paid back first as an investor out of the proceeds uh, of a sale or a winding up or whatever. So it's downside protection in short. And in the U S it's common, not always, but it's more common for liquidation preferences to be horizontal. So the seed liquidation preference ranks alongside the A, which ranks alongside the B and so on. Meaning that if a company like that is sold, then the funds will be distributed to all share classes at the same time. Now, the seed, let's say the seed was 2 million, and the total liquidation preference is 10 million, this is a really weird company, <laughs> and, and there's 5 million being returned out of a the sale, then the seed would get two out of the 10 first. So it's not that the seed shares would get the same percentage of the, 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 the five or whatever the exit proceeds are as the, the A, right? It's, it's basically your percentage of the total liquidation preference. So that's what's normal in the U.S in the UK and Europe what's normal is to have a waterfall so if we take the same company then you'd have the C shares here they'll only get paid back after the A gets paid back and the A would only get paid back after the B gets paid back so suddenly you have the opportunity for misalignment right because let's say you're doing a you're doing a fire sale things really haven't worked out but it's good for the company. If a sale takes place, you know, the employees find a new home, there's some return for everyone. It's not a total write-off. But suddenly, you know, in order to get that to happen, you need the seed people to sign off, even though the seed people aren't gonna get anything because the entire liquidation preference is gonna be sucked up by the A and B. But you need the C seed people to sign off. So misalignment. In in the US case, where everyone's ranking alongside each other, everyone will get paid something out of the proceeds. So, and Hopin, and this is all public, right? Like you have to publicly file this, but with Hopin, U- UK company, you did have a horizontal liquidation preference. And as a result, you know, there was just less uh, less risk of misalignment.
2: Just uh, as a um, clearing up note, where do you typically see founders and uh, um, employee stock option plans being in, uh, in this stack?
1: So, you know, so it's a it's a very topical question, and I'm happy to talk about kind of what we're seeing kind of vis-a-vis uh, options being underwater. But typically options are over common shares, right? Meaning that they're ranking behind the liquidation preference, irrespective of whether the liquidation preference is horizontal or vertical, right? The total liquidation preference needs to be repaid before the ordinary shares. So the founders and the employees that have options over ordinary shares or warrants in Denmark. Or ordinary shares get get paid. So, so yeah, they're, they're behind the investor money, basically.
2: How does the US model tackle misalignment with founders and operators, if it does at all? Or, and are there any, how do you put it, any methods with yeah. which you can actually solve for that?
1: So it's, it's something that we're seeing a lot of uh, at the moment uh, across Europe and the US and virtually every market where companies have raised a lot of money. You know, this phenomenon of of employees thinking that, hey, what's the point of me being here? My options, like equity is one of the main reasons I joined the startup. The equity is worth nothing because the company raised a billion and it's probably only worth 300 million. So my options are never going to be in the money. Why am I hanging around? So that is a real problem uh, across venture globally, I'd say. So what are your options? Well, one thing you can do is you can carve out from the top of the liquidation preference. Let's just assume it's a horizontal one. So, you know, the Series E is at the very top. They need to be repaid first. You can carve out from the Series E a percentage of the proceeds that will go to certain or all employees. Um, that's called a management carve out. Uh, it's very rare that it's all employees. Typically, it's only kind of the employees who are going to really drive value in the run-up to a sale. And typically this sort of carve out plan is put in place in anticipation of a sale in the short term. It's like a motivating, you know, incentive to 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 get the company to a sale.
2: Is there any way for founders to kind of correct their position along the way? How meaning what you're what you just described, how do you advise founders and VCs to kind of start this conversation? When do you typically see it? Is it
1: So fundamentally, this is a discussion around incentivization, right? Now, equity is usually the most efficient way or effective way to incentivize employees. But fundamentally, that's what we're talking about is is incentivization. So I think having the right narrative as a company is super, super important. So it might be that, okay, the last financing valued the company at 400 million and the company's raised 800 million. But the company has enough cash to extend its runway and try to grow into that valuation, or rather grow into a valuation that exceeds the amount it raised, in which case all the employees could still be in the money. So I think a, a, a strong narrative is super, super important. And it's certainly something we, we work with our companies on a lot that, that are in that situation.
2: carve out, are they in any way... Legally, are you required to communicate those? Do you have to register them somewhere so that if you do it as as a as a a firm, you actually it will be.
1: It's it's a good question. I'd say it depends on the jurisdiction, right? Like, especially in Europe, you know, you have how many countries are there now in the EU? Twenty eight, you know, Uh, like Like, you know, each of them. I I don't know. Has Ukraine joined yet? So you know, it depends on kind of local law in short. I'm not sure that what is legal here even really matters because fundamentally you'll want to be honest with, with your employees. If you put in place a carve out that only benefits certain people and you only tell certain people about that and then the word spreads to people who might not benefit from the carve out, that's probably not going to lead to a very happy situation.
2: Yeah. So being a founder is like a uh... Being married and uh, trying to manage that relationship. With that note, let's go to the quickfire round. <laughs> and now the quickfire. First up, what advice would you give your ten-year younger self?
1: So I'd say, know yourself and figure out whether you want to be an advisor or an operator. And if you want to be an advisor, try to gain a lot of different experiences, maybe even as an operator. But if your heart is set on being an operator, you know, build something over time. And this is actually comes from a presentation or a fireside chat that André Kussid gave at our founder gathering in Amsterdam earlier this year. And it, it really struck with me, kind of that delineation between advisors and operators and how, um, you know... Different things make a good operator and a good advisor.
2: What are your top tips for emerging VCs across Europe who are currently fundraising?
1: I know a lot of your listeners are emerging fund managers. I'd say probably an obvious point, but get to your first close at all costs. Even if it involves needing to take in money that's subject to more control than you'd like, uh, and bring in the rest via kind of a 12 month period. So just get to a first close in this market, give yourself a shot. And I'd also say, consider warehousing to help LPs de-risk their, their decision to invest in your fund.
2: And we could dive much more into that since you're general counsel, but we won't now because it's too quick for round, but we could talk a lot about how that can be done. Yeah, for sure. Now, what's the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you've been in Venture?
1: in Venture, you're defined by your wins. You know, were you the, you know, were you first investor in Spotify or Klarna or, you know, your legacy is your wins. But your reputation is how you manage your losses. And an early stage fund, just from a pure returns perspective, you're not really incentivized to spend time with companies that won't move the needle for your fund. So investors that do do that, I think are a real credit to to our community. And I think at Northstone, we're very good at that. And and in my role, I spend a chunk of time with companies uh, that kind of may fall into that category. Uh, and, And, you know, I and we do it because we owe it to our founders companies and our co-investors, and you can really form some of the most rewarding relationships in that process.
2: To those who think that David has dropped out completely and is no longer part of this interview, you are right. He fell from his chair with um, blank eyes and is rattling on the floor. Um, Just so everyone knows that that's what Tom and I are looking at at the same time.
1: Well, we're being super professional by just continuing.
2: Yes, exactly. It was just professional. You, you got to you gotta get it done. So, Thank you so much, Tom, for being one of our greatest guests. And I think the first general counsel to join us here on the podcast. Everyone listening in, thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, do drop us a, a review and follow the podcast and subscribe at EU.BC. Thanks, guys. So much fun. Let's <laughs> Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. An alliance. This
0: this is a union of values. Of values.
1: United values, and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions, regions of, the of, the world. of the world. The nature of a problem problem requires a European response.
2: Europe is a story of new beginnings. New new beginnings. Let's start acting. Acting. acting.